Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. Well, good morning, Cross family. My name is Rick. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. And uh, if you're new, if you'd like to learn more about us, uh, the easiest and fastest way is to check us out online at thecrossloganville.org. The Give app is there. Um, Announcements are there, ways of getting involved. Um, And then all of the messages that we've already done in this series are going to be on there as well, notes for the messages and all that. Um, Today we are continuing uh, in our series called 29, and uh, that is a... Uh, a reference to our belief that God is continuing to act in our lives. He's just as eager to act in our lives as he was in the pages of Scripture. We've already been through chapter 1. Chapter 2 took a few weeks because that's a loaded one. It's so loaded that there's a church named Acts 2 down the street from where I grew up. It was a Pentecostal one. Surprise, okay? Uh, but there was, <laughs> there was a, there's a lot in Acts chapter 2. Today we're in 3 and uh, we'll continue uh, in four next week. So what we're trying to do is explore this idea of the Acts 29 life. Like, what does it look like to continue keeping in step with the Spirit of God, seeking first the kingdom of God? Uh, You'll notice that it only goes to 28, right? 29 is a pointing to us being involved uh, with the Holy Spirit, with the resurrected Christ in a similar way, right, that the disciples did. Jesus may, instead of using the, the phrase Acts 29, he might just call that discipleship, right? Um, he, he, it, the discipleship means learning to live as Jesus would if he was in our position, taking on the overall pattern of his life, learning to integrate his habits into our life, to commune with God in the way that he and the disciples did. Um, in addition to that, uh, Eugene Peterson would, would basically describe it as getting in on what God is doing in your midst. Willard would say it's attending to the life that Christ is now living in us. One of these habits might look like what Frank LeBach, who's a missionary to the Philippines, trained himself to do, and that is to ask multiple times for our, what Lord would you have me do in this moment, right? A continual seeking of the will of God in our lives where no moment really needs to be wasted if we're doing that. So, uh, we need to talk about what Acts 29 is not. It is not just a, um, a shallow imitation of some of the things we have read in Scripture, okay? Uh, so, for instance, um, when I, you know, at our Fall Fest, our Halloween celebration thing, with Trunk or Treat, kids actually dressed like superheroes. This was not something we did when I grew up because uh, people were on the fence about dressing up for Halloween. It was the Conservative Assemblies of God Church. There might be some others as well. Um, it was the 90s. I think it may have been a period of history thing. Either way, the loophole for us dressing up for Halloween was to dress up in your parents' bed sheets and put a belt around it, and you could be a Bible character, and then it was okay. Um, this last uh, fall fest we had, my son Crosby, he's one, he came as a lion, he wore a little lion suit. That would have been allowed because lions are in the Bible, okay? Um, but uh, you'd ask everybody, you know, it's like, are you Moses? No. Are you Philip? No. Are you Bartholomew? No. Are you? They all dressed exactly the same from what I understand, like all the Bible characters. The only clue would be if mom's eyeliner, which made our beards, if it was lighter on one kid, that might be Moses, okay, because he's a little bit older. Either way. Um, the cool thing, too, is if your parents didn't have a problem with trick-or-treating, you could always just put a lightsaber in your hand with that same costume, and now you look like a Star Wars character, all right, because from, from what I understand, they dress similarly to Bible folks. But um, No, but discipleship is not just a shallow imitation of some of the things we've seen. 
And as silly as that might sound, the truth is we should acknowledge that we live in a culture that gives that level of advice when we're trying to make personal change, right? Uh, there's a reason so many Air Jordans sold, and the idea was, oh, if you want to be like Mike, you wear the shoes, right? Well, that's dressing like Mike. You're not going to dunk like Mike in that situation, right? Um, it cracks me up what sometimes our fast food receipts will say, Chipotle um, you know, after reading the $20 I spent on guac, you know, for this little thing, um, it's, it told me to build my own happiness as if it, rice and beans were the only thing that was standing in my way. And uh, my favorite is your pie. I love your pie. But when it tells me to express my inner pizza, I have, seriously, that's what it says. And to say, that's all I needed was a little bit of pepperoni and I, everything I was looking for. We're, we're in a culture of shallow solutions, but there is no substitute for actually jumping into the practices uh, that the disciples went through, the type of prayer, which is the same ones available to us that they had. They prayed the Psalms. Jesus is praying the Psalms on the cross, right? These things are available to us. Um, another thing that can happen as we're seeking out what the Acts 29 life might look like, I think it's very possible sometimes to... Um, not just shallowly imitate or, or have ideas specific to what's only in the Scripture, to also being somewhat intimidated by how the Lord used them to do such big things when our lives may not look as exciting, right? Being stuck in traffic and ironing the clothes doesn't seem to be as exciting as raising people uh, from different sicknesses or preaching to big crowds. Um, but I think it kind of hit me a few years ago when I was uh, in a master's program with a friend of mine, we would get together and read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he, he said what I thought out loud, but never probably would have, I would have been too embarrassed to say this, but he says, does it ever just kill you that he was 21 when he finished his doctorate and we're just 26 working on a master's? And immediately I said, yes. And then not soon after that, I thought, I think I may have missed something here, right? Like, I don't think Jesus would agree. Why aren't you keeping up with Bonhoeffer, right? I don't think Bonhoeffer would have said that either. It would be a tremendous mistake to think we need to be taking the models of different people's lives and say, that's what I need to imitate. One of the coolest things is that discipleship, it doesn't help you express your inner pizza, right? It expresses who Jesus would be in your position, right? And, and so he's, he's got that for us. That's what the culture is really looking for, is not just to be the best version of yourself, but to be who Jesus would be in your position. It's the most fulfilled you can be. It's certainly the best thing for the people around you, right? And it's the, it is the most profound way for us to enjoy God and to love God. And so again, you might say, look, my day's filled with things that are just not that exciting. How could I possibly feel that God is active in my life like he was with these other people that are doing crazy things? And I'd say two things. Number one, we don't read much about Jesus from the ages of being born to being 30. There's a, there's a little spot in there where we hear some things, but the majority, Jesus lived in total obscurity. And so he's doing chores. He's doing boring stuff. He is learning to be faithful in small things, right? Same thing with, with all the disciples. And so that is the way we really are trained in faithfulness is by attending to things that you would not make a movie about, right? Um, but I think in addition to that, not only is that how we are formed for later ministry, I think it would be a big mistake to discount those moments, because those are the ones where we actually meet God. Like, that's actually where our life really is. That's where we are knowing God. And in addition, um, I think that it really could be something miraculous for our family, 
um, if the whole culture has this, this anxious presence of like trying to keep up, hurry, and, and, and frustration and stress and all that, and if we were doing the boring things of life while exuding the presence of God, I mean, that would absolutely be a blessing to the houses we're in, to the environments we're in, and really could end up being more profoundly impactful for people than some of these other things that the Lord may call us to do someday, all right? So I would not discount those moments. Um, to summarize Acts chapter 3, uh, super, super fast. Uh, we're going to go into detail, but there's two main chunks of it. Uh, Peter heals a man, all right, and then Peter preaches a sermon. That's Acts chapter 3, but we're going we're gonna to zoom in here, okay? In, uh, <laughs> I like to simplify things a little bit. Um, in verse 6, uh, Peter and John are heading to the temple to pray. They are followers of the resurrected Jesus, but they're Jewish. And they haven't been called Christians yet, and they haven't sorted out um, what they're going to continue to do, what they're not going to continue to do. All that stuff happens later. They're going about their, their normal lives. And uh, there's a, a man who can't walk. He's a lame beggar, and his life consists of laying there asking for alms. And he knows the drill. That's what his life's all about. And Peter walks by, and I'll go into detail here in a second, but Peter says to him, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, the reason that I really appreciate this, this, this small piece of this narrative here is because if you've read very much about Peter, you might think of him as a pretty flighty individual, right? When he thinks he sees Jesus across the water, he jumps in the water, goes swims, gets freaked out because a tussle's about to happen. He chops the guy's arm off, right? It, Jesus' transfiguration, some wild stuff is happening. And instead of reading the room and being quiet and paying attention, he blurts out, let's make a shrine for you, and let's make a shrine for you, and let's make a shrine for you. It was like an Oprah episode, all right? Everybody gets a shrine in this case. And uh, he just, he's, he's nervous. He's flighty. He doesn't really stay grounded in situations. Uh, but in this, in this little uh, narrative, it talks about, you just sense a different type of gravitas and, and groundedness in Peter as he walks up to this man um, who thinks he knows how this is going to go, and it doesn't. He goes up to Peter, or he goes up to this man and says, look at me, right? Says he looks straight at him. He gives him his full attention. He makes sure the guy's given him his full attention, right? Um, he, he acknowledges the concerns of the man, right? He knows, like, I know you want money. I know that that's what you think you need, but he's saying, he understands where he's coming from, but he says, silver and gold I do not have, right? But what I have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. He speaks the healing word, and then right after this, he actually helps the guy up. Like, he actually makes physical contact, pulls the guy up, and then, as any introvert would be really, really afraid of, the guy gets way clingy with, with Peter and John after this, right? They don't want to leave their sight. Uh, he doesn't want to leave their sight. It's, you can imagine, right? Um, but in this case, Peter is really, I think, displaying um, uh, how, how some of the fullest ministry can happen. And that is, while being aware that the Lord is doing something and there's a lot going on, we're really, really giving our full attention to the fullness of somebody else's humanity. And the reason is, which that itself could be so countercultural, that it would be considered a cultural, like a really profound moment with someone. But oftentimes, uh, in ministry, it's possible, right? Um, to get in this, this mistaken category of, and it's not just ministry, it might be teaching, it might be any helping profession, 
to reduce people down to problems, right, or projects, and say, my main relationship with you is to overcome this challenge you have while ignoring the, full, the rest of it, right, like really what they need. In the, an example of this, I think, uh, was written about by uh, a, a Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber who wrote a book called I and Thou, okay? He lived a few decades ago. He's not a Christian man. He's a Jewish man. But in his town, the, this, this young man who had questions about life sought out some time with this, with this philosopher who's very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. And he's asking him all these questions, and Martin Buber just loves talking about this stuff. It's Scripture. It's philosophy. It's the meaning of life and all that. And he was... Um, he didn't learn until later on during the week that that young man wasn't coming just to kind of like hang out with a guy who could have an interesting conversation. What he, what he heard is that the young man had deep questions about life because he was thinking about whether he was going to continue living or not or take his own life. And he found out that he had made the decision to take his life later on that week. And for all of all the brilliance Boober had, he just felt this weight of thinking, I know that I could have been capable in those moments to see past the questions this guy was asking me. I know I could have been more present to what this person's really, really going after. And he just, he, he felt the weight of that and wrote this book called I and Thou, which the idea, what it's saying is I is a person and, and you as a person and really making sure, it's not that we would ever see someone as subhuman as much as not not being really aware of the fullness of their background and the completeness of, of the dimensions of, of another person. And he contrasts this idea of I and thou with I and it and just reducing human beings to the, the very small piece of information that we have about them, right? Or into a two-dimensional figure when the love that, call, that Jesus is calling us into is, is so much fuller and deeper than that. And the reason this is such a big deal, I think, is because oftentimes when Jesus would do uh, healings, the scripture would call them signs, right? And so the idea would be, this is actually a sign to his authority, right? It's not just that the person is being served, the person's being rescued or benefited. In these different healings, a major point of it was to prove the authority of Jesus. And so this one example, Jesus says within the hearing of his rivals, the Pharisees, he says, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees don't like that because who is this guy to forgive sins, right? And they're saying he's taking on God's authority right now. Like he's, he's, he's taking authority that he doesn't have is what they're thinking. He's claiming to be God. And then Jesus' response is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk, right? And because of that healing power, um, they were forced to take Jesus' message seriously. And this is part of what happens in Acts 3. There's a big crowd build. There's a big crowd that builds because this man has been uh, healed, and Jesus, or Peter credits that to Jesus' resurrection. But even though this healing was meant to also prove authority of the resurrection, the, the full humanity of this person is not ignored, and he's, he's well attended to. Um, so in Acts chapter 3, verses 12, um, the crowd builds. This man who's just been healed is quite excited, right? He's jumping around. People are around. They start to listen to Peter. And one of the first things Peter says is, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? And I think this, this little, that phrase is particularly important 
um, in our culture that is so celebrity-driven, right? This idea that we would, that someone would really, really give God the credit for what God has done and not be mistaken for the source of it, okay? To not take credit where credit's not due, right? Um, this attitude by Peter, I think, is very similar to uh, Forrest Gump, okay? Where there's that scene where Forrest Gump, has, he's received the Medal of Honor from rescuing so many of his fellow soldiers in Vietnam, and uh, the love of his life, Jenny, is sitting there with him, and he wants to give her his Medal of Honor. And she realizes the weight of this thing, what a big deal it is, and she says, I can't take that. That's, like, you know, way too precious. And first of all, Forrest probably doesn't get... Um, how precious it is, but what, what he says was, I only got it from doing what you told me to do, right? He says, I only did this from running because you told me to run. That was what she said. Don't be a hero out there. Take care of yourself. And of course, he kept rescuing people while running, but the idea was in his mind, the only reason I have this thing that people are so impressed with is because I did what you told me to do. That is the relationship of the acts of God in our lives is all I did was obey Jesus, and the best part wasn't seeing what God did, it was being with Jesus, right? If we have that attitude, um, things are going to fit in their place. Um, and so again, in this celebrity-driven culture, this is really important because uh, the, the concept of saint has been largely swallowed up and blocked by the idea of celebrity, okay? So celebrities, it's not a bad thing. There's this one philosopher that says, in any society, you're going to have people that are celebrated. Like, that's not a bad thing. Ideally, you pick the right people to admire, but he's, that's a secular guy, and the, the category, he's kind of conflated a saint with celebrity, as if they're just a celebrated individual, but that's not what a saint is. A saint also doesn't mean perfect and sinless either. What it does mean is someone who's well acquainted with the life of God inside them and through them. The difference between a celebrity and a saint is that the goal of a celebrity is to be celebrated, to get attention. The goal of a saint would be totally different. While they could have some celebration or attention, the main thing they're looking to do is give their attention to God as continually as possible. And I'm convinced the reason that so many uh, seek celebrity or seek to be well-known in our culture is because we are unaware of how much attention and loving affection God has for each one of us. It's the only reason that desire would make any sense, right? And so an example of this uh, from real life uh, from a few years ago, um, I was listening to uh, an audiobook of eulogies of one of my favorite um, Christian thinkers. His name was Dallas Willard, and he was a philosopher by training, but was teaching a little bit at a school for pastors, okay? So he was at a seminary, and the lady that wrote this eulogy says, it really struck me being in this class because one of the things I noticed is that so many of these pastoral students were kind of rude to him. <laughs> like, they were kind of disrespectful, and I, I was surprised to see that, but I was much more surprised to, to think that it's almost like he doesn't notice they're being a little bit rude to him. And now, it's not that he's not a sharp guy. He's a very, very smart guy. However, um, it just would seem to him, because he had been so, become so humble that it was almost like he was unoffendable, that while he realizes someone's being rude, it's not particularly relevant, right, as to whether he's going to continue serving them in the way Jesus would in his position, and he certainly would not want their lack of love for him to distract his attention from the love that God has for him and the other folks in the room, right? And so, He's keeping in step with the Spirit. And this just really shakes her, right? She's the, the writer of this eulogy. See, this is just really unique. And then she said, at the end of the seven weeks he was there, 
there was this time where the whole class kind of honored him, you know, thanked him for bringing uh, his teachings, and man, you're, they're just gushing over him, right? They're just saying, man, you're so great, all this kind of thing. In the middle, I mean, it goes on for like 20 minutes, and in the middle of one of the students thanking him and saying, hey, this has been so helpful, Willard interjects, what if I backslide? And what, the way that I took that to mean in that moment was this guy who is being celebrated, which is the goal of so much of celebrity culture, even in our small circles, right? He has got the peak of that. And in the middle of it, what scares him is that these students would think, I'm the one you should be paying attention to instead of the Holy Spirit who's responsible for anything that he has to offer in the first place, right? And it hurts him that they might be missing out on that source, which is so available to them in that moment. And Tim makes fun of me because I look Presbyterian a lot of the time, but I'm genetically and theologically Pentecostal. But when I, when I hear this audiobook, all I can do is grip the steering wheel. This example of this man who said, get the eyes off me, give it to the Lord. I, I pause the audiobook, grip the steering wheel, and yell, praise the Lord three times at the top of my lungs, Right? Because it was like, this guy has escaped the peak ideas of what this culture says we should be pursuing and has found something better. Praise the Lord. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, this idea that celebrity is fine, whatever, but sainthood is possible. Because the same source of sainthood, of being a temple of the Lord, carrying the presence of God, that's not only available to us, it is exactly the life we were meant to be living in the first place. Um, in Acts chapter 3, verses 14... Um, Peter brings the heat. He starts telling these men of Israel, he says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. And what he's saying is, um, he's telling kind of like the whole story of Israel and then of the last few weeks with Jesus' crucifixion and, and resurrection, but he's referring to Barabbas, right? Where right before Jesus is crucified, there's this custom where you could allow a criminal to be let go or someone else to be let go, and the people choose this guy who's a murderer, right? He's an insurrectionist. And in that moment, growing up in church at least, I'm not sure if ever, you know, anybody else is like this, but when you hear a story like this, the automatic reaction is, I didn't do that, or I wouldn't do that, right? You want to separate yourself immediately. But I, I think that that's, that's <laughs> this right here, we have the same temptation as we have when a reality TV show is on, okay? You might ask yourself, how is reality TV a thing? Like, this is truly mind-numbing stuff. How is a show like Bridalplasty possible? Don't act like you don't know what that is. Um, I'm just kidding. Nick told me about this. Bridalplasty <laughs> is, I'll share mine in a second, but uh, Nick said, Bridalplasty is apparently 10 brides who also want to get a nose job, but they also want to get married. And I think that if they win the contest somehow, I don't know if they're competing over one guy or what. Either way, if they go through with the wedding, they get a free nose job, okay? Why is that on TV? My favorite terrible one was called uh, I Want to Marry Harry. And <laughs> we finished it like in under a week because it was so terrible, we had to keep watching. And uh, the premise of this one is that they took 10 American women, put them in England, and they were competing to win the heart of Prince Harry, who is really a ginger uh, with an English accent, who is a garbage collector, okay? And they apparently have never seen a picture of the guy, or they think all gingers look the same, uh, or whatever. Um, I think they dig my favorite thing, too, is when they'll accuse each other of not being there for the right reasons, you know? So I don't think they really, yeah. Uh, anyway, the value 
of, of reality TV is often to give us an immediate sense of superiority, right? To say, what is, I would never do that, right? I would never be in that situation. And this isn't the only opportunity we have from reading the Bible to read a story and say, how did they do that? Like, oh, how is it possible? I, if I was an Israelite in the desert after seeing God lay the smack down on the Egyptians, I would not want to go back to Egypt. There's a reason they did, right? I mean, there, there are reasons. And to think that we're so different, it's probably, it's probably not a humble thing. And so in this case of choosing Barabbas over Jesus, thank the Lord we're not in a situation where we're choosing whether we would contribute to Jesus' death versus the other guy. Um, but I don't think there's a good reason to think that if I was in that position, I would have chosen any different, right? And I think that it would be very helpful for us to consider that if we have a similar spiritual formation to those folks, that is, unless Jesus did something really specific to change the way our heart, soul, mind, and strengths functions, we would have probably chosen the same thing. And part of the reason is because uh, Barabbas, we probably would have considered kind of a local folk hero, right? His name means son of our fathers. He was an insurrectionist, meaning he fought the Roman Empire that we would have hated just as much as he did and as much as they did. And we probably would have loved it to hear if Barabbas had got lucky enough to kill a Roman soldier in the middle of a riot. We would have absolutely been okay with him going. And so thankfully, again, we don't have the situation where we would choose which one would die and which one would go free. I think the major danger still does exist to us, though, and that is of disowning the Holy One and choosing this other person to follow instead that reflects the cultural values that we have deeply, deeply in us and probably don't even notice, right? So this is a major work of discipleship is to uncover who Jesus actually is through communion with him and then letting the values we've grown up with, some of which are close to good, being fulfilled right into everything that he would have them be. Uh, there's a, a seminary professor named Scott McKnight up in the Northern Seminary, and he'll play this trick on his students where he'll uh, have everybody write out like a personality test, like describe yourself and this sort of thing. And uh, he'll, they'll turn that in, he'll hold it for a month, then he'll give them this second test that says, describe what you think Jesus is like. And I don't know if you know where this is going, but he gives it back to them at the end of the semester, and they all discover, oh, everybody thinks Jesus is like them, right? <laughs> that, that is the common thing for us to do, is to build a form of Jesus in our image, right? Which means it's going to be totally impossible to be who Jesus would be in our position if we're aiming for some idealized version of ourself that we mistake for Jesus in his position. I think that's the more subtle common danger, right? In uh, Acts chapter 3, verses 18, uh, Peter moves on uh, to say, but this is, how, uh, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. So he's trying to explain what all Christians need to kind of wrestle with and be able to explain, uh, something that's going to be a problem for anybody from any culture who wants to follow Jesus, how does the suffering God make any sense? Like, that's kind of a problem for us. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. And if he were here, he might have said, it was not successful of Jesus to die on a cross, right? It's, it's what a, in our, one philosopher says, 
because we are so prosperous, we've moved from the idea that someone could be fortunate or unfortunate, and really what we have is winners or losers. And what you would have to, in our culture, we would say Jesus looks like a loser, right, to have gone that way. Um, and so Peter is saying there's a reason the Messiah suffered, right? There's a big reason he had to do this. Um, one of the, the, I think the biggest reason to people's objection to following God usually. Sometimes it's because, you know, they have a hard time believing the truth claims. Usually, particularly in our culture, there's enough entertainment to distract us from big questions forever, right? But the main thing where people give thought to the possibility of following God, one of the biggest objections they'll have when they get serious is, how could he allow as much suffering in the world that he has, right? Uh, this is one of the oldest problems of uh, of, of, of the Jews and Christians, where in the Bible, the book of Job, it deals with that problem. How is it possible that God has allowed the suffering? So it's one of the oldest uh, problems we have. And uh, as, as careful as I am not to give like easy or glib answers to explain big, huge, terrible problems, at this point, I want to say it as, as humbly and empathetically as I can, I think really the quickest explanation to explain the problem of evil in the world is that because God has allowed free will, free will comes with stuff that we probably, like the depths of which we don't know, right? We've heard horror stories of stuff, of different types of suffering in the world, but it, it comes from human free will. The other half of that story, though, is that God does not leave us to bear that weight alone, and Jesus comes in to suffer with humans. Uh, why did Jesus come to earth? To die as the sacrifice for our sins? Absolutely. John Piper says the worst type of suffering is the eternal kind of suffering, right? Heaven and hell is a big deal. So the sacrifice for our sins is huge. Um, in addition, he comes to show us what God looks like. The scripture says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He teaches. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but his teachings have affected the world since he's been here. That's knowing how to live is really, really important. But I would say, in addition, Jesus came to outsuffer human beings, not just to join human beings in suffering, but to actually claim the authority of suffering beyond what, anybody, what any human uh, besides him has uh, experienced. Uh, when I was in high school, my Spanish teacher was, she was a missionary uh, to Bolivia. She would read uh, parts of this biography of a missionary who had uh, gone to an unreached people group in the Amazon. Uh, he, no one knew their language outside of this place. So this guy went and lived with them and had to discover what they were saying. I mean, like, that's a, that's a big commitment. And so this guy named Bruchko, he hangs out with these folks for years and years and years uh, to understand their language so that he could minister to them. And at one point during his, his, his living with them, he noticed that their little kids would get these eye infections. And because he doesn't know their language, he doesn't say, hey, let me have your kid, let me put, squirt this medicine into their eye, right? He would, he would get kicked out at best for that. What he does instead is he takes some of the gunk out of the kid's eyes and puts it in his own eye, and he develops the infection. So this is a mark of solidarity for one. But then after that, he takes the medicine that he has, demonstrates to them that, look, it works. It doesn't hurt me. And then, of course, after seeing that he took those risks, he entered into that suffering with them and also has this thing that can be helpful to them, the parents are then willing to take the medicine and put it in their kids' eyes. And that was one of the trust-building things um, that he did. And so Jesus, not, 
the way this metaphor is extended, he doesn't just enter into our suffering for what humanity, humanity has been through. Um, in addition to that, as we are on our journey with Jesus, there's a reason why he says, take up your cross and follow me, and that is because his medicine is hard, right? He did have some, ser- there's this one sermon um, that almost got him thrown off a cliff where he's telling these people, you know, God the God of Israel has appeared to Israel's enemies in the past to minister to Israel. This is a very patriotic town, right? And they tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off the cliff. And the only reason they didn't is because God stopped them from doing that in that moment. And this is to say the medicine of Jesus' teaching, it is healing, but it's not painless, right? And this idea of the suffering Messiah is so important um, because it's, it's something we've already been through. It's something we can't skip certain amounts of suffering. It's not a bad type. It's the healing kind, but it's something that nobody gets to skip. Uh, there was a, a writer who uh, was finishing his degree at Harvard Divinity School, so he's, he's studying theology, and this guy eventually ends up being a foreign war correspondent, like he would take pictures of brutality in the Serbian war later on, and uh, so he would do all that after his divinity degree, but he, he lived, he's a student, he's not doing well with money, right? And he's living in an extremely poor area where there's a lot of suffering, a lot of hopelessness. And then in the same day, he goes to Harvard. That's like a, I mean, it's like a kingdom. It's a beautiful place. And this contrast between this extreme wealth and and all that, and then just real poverty bothered him all the time. But this one day, it really bothered him. And he goes in there, and he says to his theology professor, are created, are human beings just created to suffer? He's at the end of his rope. He's, you know, he's studying theology, and he goes, are human beings just created to suffer? And the professor responds, is there any love that doesn't suffer? And we do believe there's, there's this heaven, right, where there is no suffering, but I think that we can absolutely say that love will always be willing to suffer for the good of those who are loved. It's what 1 Corinthians 13 begins with. Patience literally means long-suffering. And so Jesus has demonstrated his goodness, his empathy with us, not just his authority to give us what we need, but also his willingness to share in our sufferings. Um, And then finally, in Acts chapter 3, verses 26, um, Peter continues and says, when God raised up his his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you uh, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And, And what strikes me is that that is not normally the way uh, the gospel is presented in America. We're not wrong, we're just incomplete when we say the gospel is mainly that because Jesus died for your sins, you can say the prayer and you don't go to hell, right? That's a major part of it. Like I said, the eternal suffering is the worst kind, but there's so much more to it than that, right, than just the afterlife. There's this life that is being saved. We call that sanctification, I think it might be just as helpful to think of it as Jesus saving us in the moments, right, by forming our character, communing with him, living the life that we were created to live by attending to him uh, moment to moment. We might think of this uh, like hearing of a person who's on trial for murder, all right? They've got rage issues. They've killed people. It sure looks like they're going to spend life in prison, and, well, they, they get out. They don't get convicted, and, and you overhear them saying, oh, isn't that great? All my problems are solved. <laughs> I don't have to do life in prison anymore. Anybody who would hear that would say, well, now I have problems that I didn't know that I had, right? And the truth is, you still have the same problems, right? I mean, you're not going to face the punishment for those problems, but the, 
the cause of those problems are still totally there. And that is a lack of, of reverence for humankind based on fear of God, right? In a relationship with anger that makes you think that this is something that's possible, like if, if people sense or violate your sense of expectations, right? And so a lot of what, what Jesus is doing through discipleship is not just saving our eternal soul, he is also saving us from not being like God, right? In, this, in the agape and the loving way that he's designed us to be. It's not like he's telling us to do something that he's not doing himself. He's inviting us to do what he's always been doing, and that is living um, the agape life with, with Lord. And so um, we're going to have a, an opportunity here to enter into worship and, and begin one of those disciplines. Like I said, a major part of what the Acts 29 life is is engaging in those habits and those formational practices that Jesus himself went through, that the disciples went through, and it begins by really developing a hunger for the Lord. This is what worship is, right? It's not just where you express your current feelings of God's goodness. It's where you develop your desire for God to experience God. So if you would uh, bow with me in prayer, um, we'll enter into a time of worship.